Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutmers. Welcome everyone to Revolution and good morning. Thank you for listening. It's nice to have you here enjoying and joining in our show and our conversation, the first show of the new year for Revolution anyway. And as per usual, we're going to start off our show with our roundtable discussion and I am joined by my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Caracella. Morning. And Deb Caracella. Good morning. And we're actually coming to you from a different location this particular morning as Studio H. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As uh, Deb has uh, purchased and moved into a new house over the holidays and is uh, graciously allowing us to use it as our live studio for this show. We should call the Studio D. D? D for Deb? Studio D? Studio Deb. Studio Deb. Deb. Sounds good to me. And for our roundtable discussion, I'm actually going to challenge my co-hosts, and I would like to challenge everyone listening, to do this in a slightly new and different way, since it's a new year, and the topic is going to be on becoming new. And this is a topic and some questions that I saw in a newsletter from the Tarot School in New York, and they were quite thought-provoking for me, and I thought, perfect fodder for jumping off into the new year with some questions for each of us to think about. So the new process to try that I'm going to ask my co-host and all of you listening to also perhaps try to do is we're going to, uh, I'm going to ask the question, just close your eyes, say whatever it is that comes to you in that moment when you close your eyes in response to that question. Uh, If you're listening um, to the show, I would encourage you to do this and perhaps have either your computer or a journal or something ready so that you could perhaps make note of what it is that comes up for you for the question as well, because it's always interesting to look back on it and then perhaps ask the question again at a later time and see what comes up. So having said that, what I'm going to do is just ask the question, ask the co-host to close their eyes. I'll call out a name. They will simply give their immediate response as to what's coming to them intuitively rather than thinking about it so it's not coming from their head versus coming from someplace in their subconscious or elsewhere beyond, Um, and we will see what comes up. So the first question, and the topic here is becoming new, and the first question, what is new? So for that word, when you hear that word, what is new? Mildred Lynn McDonald. Well, hi, C. Latimer's. 
to me, new is an ah moment. And I go, ah. John Carousella. New growth, like uh, the emergence of leaves on a tree. Deb Carousella. New is fresh, never before experienced. What does new mean? John Carousella. Uh, openness and uh, openness and embracingness. What does new mean, Deb Carousella? Unknown. What does new mean, Mildred Lynn McDonald? The essence is intact a hundred percent, like fresh as a daisy or crisp. What is newness? What is newness, Deb Carousella? Completeness, fresh, very similar to what Mildred just expressed, a, uh, a totality of, of brand new unexplored. What is newness, Mildred and McDonald? The opposite of oldness. What is newness, John Carousella? Newness is... Sheets hanging on the line in the breeze, and what's n- the newness about that is the is the contact between the air molecules, the breeze, and the sheets that has never happened before. How does new happen? How does new happen, Mildred and McDonald? Hmm. I go back to an ah moment. So it could be a jolt or maybe it's a gradual evolution. And when you talk to me first, when you first mentioned that, it's a shift in energy or an expansion in consciousness, space. How does new happen, John Carousella? Uh, New happens when, in the moment of communion, when something that has never interacted with something else before, interacts with something. How does new happen, Deb Carousella? It's automatic and and continuous. It's moment by moment by moment, because each moment is new from the moment you just experienced. Where does new come from? Where does new come from, John Carousella? New comes from, it's hard to put into words, uh, the, the short answer is the void, um, the more articulate answer is new comes from the emergence of, the emergence from the void. Where does new come from, Deb Carousella? New comes from Within and without, new is everywhere. Where does new come from, Mildred Lynn McDonald? What I got is, if new is true, then it comes from universal truth. So that finishes our question. And I would encourage everyone listening to just let what it is that comes up sit with you over a period of time and then come back to revisit the questions 
see what comes up at a different time. And this is a way to perhaps start a new year, perhaps to start a new month, to start a new moon cycle, by asking questions of what is new, and we may be surprised as to what we see or what comes up for us that is new or ready to be new in that moment or in our lives. Thank you very much to our co-hosts for joining in this new way of trying our round <laughs> table. Uh, thank you to Mildred Lynn McDonald. You're welcome. To John Carousella. Always a pleasure. And to Deb Carousella. You're welcome. And I would encourage you to stay tuned if you would like to call in to receive a reading later in the show. You're welcome to do that. You can Skype in from the show page or call 646-716-5510 to get into the queue. And coming up after our astrology update is going to be my revolutionary guest this month, Lisa Dale Miller. And we're going to be talking about divination and the psyche. What is really going on when we are engaging in the process of divination? And what do we think is going on? So stay tuned for that, and we'll be right back. Funny people say, funny people say, Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Good afternoon, boys and girls. This is Tina Colenda, your Queer Astrology, with your January Astrology Report. Well, welcome to 2014, this lovely screaming infant of a new year. (laughs) It is often such a triple how we humans are so keen on addressing time as if it a living thing that has a developmental arc. I suppose it is a trick our minds play on us, as we are creatures that are born, develop, and then terminate over an arc. With that said, there's no time like the present to discuss what's in store for the month ahead. We began the month January 1st with a Capricorn new moon. The moon is on the longest arc of its journey in this sign and is furthest away from its home. It is a placement where we collectively struggle with our true feelings and resist showing them in public. It encourages us to initiate a practical approach to emotions, drives, and instincts. There is a tendency towards wanting to feel useful and productive 
and a struggle to feel that there is reciprocity for the efforts put forth. A reluctance to deal with the messy side of emotional life is indicated here, and yet that is exactly what needs to be done. There's a tendency over the next lunar cycle to come off as cold and calculating. It is useful to address this. And a practical and pragmatic approach to dealing with feelings as they arise over the next month. It's also a great time to get the ball rolling on ventures of any kind, whether it is finding a sanctuary to rest your laurels or tending to financial realities. The enterprising Capricornian energies will lend a hand. Along with our new moon in Capricorn is a conjunction between Mercury and Pluto at 11 degrees Capricorn. It reminds us to transform our language in practical ways so as to speak in a matter that is on topic and makes the most impact in the fewest words possible. In summary, brevity with impact. Expect these elements to flavor the atmosphere the first half of January as these contexts tend to echo in quiet whispers over the long frame. Rolling right along to January 3rd when another aspect makes its entrance. This day begins a roller coaster of planetary relationships. Here's the laundry list. Pluto squares Mars at 9 degrees Capricorn and 12 degrees Libra respectively. The warrior is fighting for justice and fairness and is being confronted by the pragmatic concerns of consensus reality. Pluto is attempting to purify the corruption in the collective arrangements that set the parameters of social reality, and Mars is working to fight for fairness and justice. The two are going head-to-head and making ransom demands. These are actually powerfully creative contacts. The friction they generate is actually a creative tension that demands substantial and far-reaching action. On a personal level, it is saying that we need to address and confront the limits of our relationships figure out how to advocate for arrangements that create fairness and harmony. It means addressing any hidden motives or agendas and also finding practical solutions to addressing any power imbalances. Are you getting all you can or are you taking too much? It is a question of balancing the scales. The Sun and Mars are also forming a square at this time, with the Sun also in Capricorn and Mars in Libra. In this case, our sense of identity is tied to our ideas around fairness and balance, and it is something we find ourselves fighting for over the next week or two. If you find you are a bundle of energy, it is because these two unstoppable power sources are competing for supremacy in this locked-in configuration. The sun is demanding a pragmatic approach to daily realities, and Mars is adding fuel to that fire. The best way of dealing with this transit is to channel the excess energy into creative and constructive avenues. If you find yourself picking fights with your intimates over a misperceived flight against a personal idea of fairness, it is wise to stop and assess whether or not the injustice is valid or invented. The excess energy saved from these conflicts can be funneled into workable solutions. To add to this fun little party, Mercury in Capricorn opposition to Jupiter in Cancer at 15 degrees. If you find yourself being overly verbal or effusive in discussing your feelings, this could be why. While it is good to talk about feelings, it is also a way to avoid feeling them. Sometimes silence is the answer. January 5th, we're going to access Jupiter in Cancer and Sun in Capricorn at opposition 15 degrees. These two planets normally work quite quite well together, 
but they are in opposition, each screaming their demands from opposite sides of the table. Jupiter is in the sign of its exaltation, which is in essence a party being thrown in Jupiter's honor, and the sun is sitting in the opposite sign. These are two crucial fulcrums on the wheel of the zodiac as they represent the dynamism between the masculine and feminine creative energies. The trick to dealing with the opposition is to unite the heart, which is Cancer, with the head, which is Capricorn. Both Cancer and Capricorn deal with practical reality, the difference being that Cancer deals with inner ones and Capricorn deals with exterior ones. The pitfall to watch out for is a tendency to overpromise and underdeliver. This aspect can cause an excessive approach to indulging transitory moods and emotions and ignoring our real-world responsibilities. The energetic effect will be felt for at least two weeks out from the ingress, so being vigilant of its tendency will go a long way. January 6th, Mercury in Capricorn sextile Saturn in Scorpio at 20 degrees. It's always lovely when these two boys go at it with each other. Remembering that a sextile is the equivalent of two energies making love to each other. Mercury lends his natural mischievous nature to the serious and somber resonance of Saturn. It will be much easier to discuss and communicate in a practical way any hidden motives with Saturn digging deep into Scorpio and coming up with articulated ways of mastering the murky waters of mutual entanglements and Mercury broadcasting in crisp and precise ways. Discussing any ulterior agendas will prove ridiculously easy and will have deep impact with few words. It may mean that a creative and tactful way will be found to tell a loved one to knock off a manipulative tactic or even to tell an intimate a deep, dark fancy you would like them to oblige you in. Just make sure you use your words to heal and keep it simple. January 11th has us dealing with the terms of engagement. Venus in Capricorn sextile Saturn in Scorpio at 21 degrees. Venus and Saturn are natural friends in the zodiac as it relates to Saturn being exalted in a Venus-ruled sign. When these two team up and make love, it can be a most perfect union. If you wish to go deeper with someone in your life, now, today is an excellent day to make those intentions known. Also a great day for signing contracts or making agreements both personal and collective. Keep the terms simple, be forthright, honest, and on point, and a good outcome is assured. Avoid getting weighed down in extraneous details. Mercury will also be entering Aquarius today. If there are any creative projects in the work that involve communications to the masses, it is a great day to take leadership on them and broadcast them to the world at large. Mercury is very comfortable in this humanitarian air sign. Don't be too shocked if some rather unusual and surprising news is received today. January 16th through 17th will feel a lot like shock therapy. A full moon in 26 degrees Cancer and a Venus in Capricorn square Mars and Libra at 18 degrees. The moon goes into its zenith today in Cancer, the sign of its natural home. If you notice that you're especially attuned to emotional tides and fluctuating moods, this is most likely why. You may find that you are organizing your closets in the morning, cuddling with a loved one by midday, and dancing on the beach while the sun sinks beneath the horizon. It may be unnerving to be so fluid. That said, it is wise to trust in the tides pulling at the edges of your heart. A dynamic moon lends itself naturally to a Mars and Venus square which occurs today 
a time of intense passion and creativity. These dynamic energies are constructively funneled into any pursuit that is creative, especially if it has practical applications. Don't be surprised if your libido is off the charts today as it tends to add energy to the erotic nature. To add to this crackling energy, we find Mercury in Aquarius at 8 degrees forming an exact sextile with Uranus at 8 degrees Aries. Don't be surprised if you cannot shut your mouth and that your ideas all seem to be highly creative. Aries is creativity in motion and Mercury in Aquarius means those ideas can easily translate to the masses if you happen to work in technological fields. It can be a great time for spontaneous innovations to emerge. January 20th, the sun makes a quantum leap into Aquarius and we get a blast of invigorating reason after a long tide of murky feelings and vague journeys into the more nebulous realms of feeling and perception. Here our star rises and we shine in the light of aspirations and collective dreams for all of humanity. It is an uplifting time as we know deep in our bones the renewal of spring and the long sleep of winter is coming to an end. Flashes of insight and wildly exciting ideas are the dominant themes of this solar transit. January 30th, we wrap up the month with a new moon at 27 degrees Capricorn. We come full circle again with a new moon and a double dose of Capricorn to set off the next month of planetary tides. Referring back to the January 1st energetic feel, again we find ourselves grappling with feelings and needing to initiate projects with practical impact. That wraps it up for January in a nice hefty package. If you'd like to contact me, please feel free to do so by emailing me at kalenda.tino at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A dot T-I-N-O at gmail.com. You can also read my updates at my blog, which is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. Have a great month, everyone. My thanks to Tino for our astrology update this month, and we'll look forward to hearing what he has to say next month. Uh, Coming up a little later in the show is your opportunity to receive a reading live here on the air. If you'd like to get in the queue for that, you can Skype in from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510. So, as you know, I'm Hi-C and you're listening to Revolution with Hi-C and we'll be right back.
revolutionary guest to this month is Lisa Dale Miller, Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based psychotherapist, artist, astrologer, and tarot reader. Lisa works with adults who struggle with depression, anxiety, substance abuse, chronic pain, grief, and emotion dysregulation, professionals in high-stress careers or life transition, couples in distress, and adolescents. Lisa is a certified somatic experiencing practitioner, a teacher of mindfulness-based relapse prevention for addiction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression relapse prevention, and mindfulness-based stress reduction. She also presents at conferences on the clinical applications of mindfulness and Buddhist psychology. Lisa has been a yogic and Buddhist meditation practitioner for more than 35 years. She has a master's degree in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, where her master's thesis, Uncertainty, Nothingness, Beingness, revisioned depression through the lenses of philosophy of quantum physics, existential psychology, and Buddhist psychology. To find out more about Lisa and her work, you can visit her website at www.lisadalemiller.com. So please help me welcome this month's revolutionary guest, Lisa Dale Miller. So welcome to the show, Lisa Dale Miller. I'm not going to say all of the alphabet that comes after your name, but if you want to clarify what, you know, basically using half of the letters in the alphabet means, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but we are certainly, I'm very excited to have you here on the show, so thank you for being here today. Well, of course, I'm very excited because you and I have known each other a long time. It is true. So being in conversation with you is something I always look forward to. <laughs> um, so. Maybe you can explain to people in the work that you do today what what it means to be a Buddhist or a mindfulness-based um, psychotherapist. So, um, well, of course, mindfulness has infiltrated, I would say at this point, almost all of the clinical disciplines that we've got for physical and mental um, health care. And mindfulness is a broad set of skills that people can use in different ways in order to be able to um, manage or even relieve um, various kinds of mental disorders and emotional disorders in a person's thinking and the way that they feel about themselves and their lives. And so mindfulness-based psychotherapy is a skills-based discipline and it's different from Buddhist psychology because Buddhist psychology is more dealing with the deeper underlying understanding of the way the mind and the self actually function and seeing and knowing your experience as it actually is rather than with some of the distortions that the mind tends to bring to cognition and to emotion. So when you put these two things together, you get a psychotherapeutic process that's very engaging, um, very transformative, um, and is 
very useful in the moment to alleviate suffering for the person in their own mind as well as for the beings who are around them. And can you just, because I think the term mindfulness has become a very popular term. And so can you maybe just clarify what mindfulness is and what mindfulness practice is in the way that you work with it and offer it to your clients? You know, the funny thing is, uh, I have a book coming out on the market, and it it is a clinical textbook on Buddhist psychology. And uh, my publisher insisted I use the word mindfulness (laughs) in the title, um, even though my main title didn't have the word mindfulness. And though it is a book on clinical use of Buddhist psychology, the word mindfulness is not featured very much in the book. I tend to use the actual words like attending or um, mindfully noticing. And mindfulness is now, it's like a code word for a slew of other things. So it's sort of been rendered meaningless in a way. As a matter of fact, we even have a term for it now. We call it mindfulness, which is the meaninglessness of what people say. But what I would say um, in in Buddhist psychology, mindfulness is a skill that involves recollecting. That's the actual translation of it in, from Sanskrit to English, is remembering. So when we're being mindful, we are remembering to be aware of what is actually occurring. And you're doing that with a kind of discernment. So it isn't just um, being aware it's more being aware and being able to discern the reality and nature of what is arising for you whether that's internal or external and then I would also say that even in the clinical world mindfulness has become this umbrella that encompasses all of the heartfulness practices of Buddhist psychology Uh, the practices of cultivating compassion, loving kindness, um, joy for the happiness of others, and equanimity. And so it's more of an umbrella now. And the beautiful thing is all of this boils down to mental training. Uh, Everything in our brain is eminently plastic and trainable. So if a person has a mental tendency toward depression or toward anxiety, those are just mental habits that a person has managed to get lost in. And what mindfulness allows a person to do is to be able to come into relationship with those habits and to bring awareness to them and to have the spaciousness to make other choices. And neurobiologically, pretty soon, if you're training the mind to be aware and to rest in the spaciousness and then choose something else, the neural pathways to depression and anxiety atrophy after a while because other synapses and neural pathways have actually been generated for the new skill. So um, there's a lot of spirituality, of course, in Buddhism, and there is that deep desire to awaken to one's true nature. And that actually happens neurobiologically in the brain. There's so much research and science, neuroscience now on meditation and uh, the basic practices of training the mind. It's a very useful tool in psychotherapy. I'm happy to have them. 
and mindfulness is something that can be done without any particular spiritual aspect or tradition or belief. Well, that's why we call it mental training. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although the, I must say, the point of the book that I wrote is that mindfulness has been so watered down and separated from its actual roots that the whole point of the textbook that I've written is to give the clinical community actual Buddhist psychology so that they know the philosophy of mind that is underneath, that underlies the practices, and they have a better sense of why one would want to mentally train, what the point of mental training is, and not only that, but where you can actually go all the way to liberating the mind from suffering to full awakening, which is absolutely possible. It makes me think that Buddhist psychology is the bell and mindfulness is the dorsha. Um, I hope your listeners understood that analogy. Maybe you'd like to explain <laughs> Bell and Dorje. <laughs> well, just that Buddhist, the Buddhist psychology aspect really takes in that deeper understanding, wisdom aspect of things, which is the symbol of the bell. Yeah. And the Dorja is that active principle, and mindfulness seems to be about how to take that deeper understanding and wisdom and put it into action to work on changing the mental thinking or overcoming a habit or changing a pattern so it's that more active aspect that right. we can do with the uh, the deeper understanding yeah um, so you've also in your past life let us say <laughs> since we're being Buddhist about it that's right um, my past incarnation <laughs> <is life. laughs> um for many years, you worked as an astrologer and a tarot reader, um, and the primary focus of the conversation that we wanted to have today is almost like combining these two lives, uh, because it's, you know, and I think that this time of year is especially when you see a lot of people seeking out readings of some sort, because mm -hmm. it's a new year from a calendar standpoint. Um, and so people want to know what's going to happen in the coming year or what do I need to plan for? So they go to look for whether it's an astrology reading or a tarot reading or palmistry or whatever kind of reading. Um, and so what we wanted to talk about was what's really happening when we combine divination and the psyche? What is it that, and you had sent a question and I kind of thought of it two ways, was what do we think is happening <laughs> and then what might you consider to actually be happening when we look at divination and the psyche together? And maybe you can um, make sure to define those terms, divination and psyche, just to make sure people understand what we mean by them and where we're coming from with this. Yeah, well, I, I first want to say that uh, to the listeners, I envision this as a dialogue that you know, I feel as though it's true. I have a tremendous amount of clinical training at this point in my life. So, um, you know, I can speak about the psyche from the clinical perspective as well as from what you and I would consider a divination perspective. Um, on the other hand, I want to start the whole conversation by saying that nobody knows what consciousness is. And I really do mean nobody. And, and I mean that in the strictest scientific sense. 
And there's a huge amount of academic and scientific research that has been going on for 30 years now to try and delineate what is consciousness. And it's a very important thing for you and I to know that nobody knows what it is because we also get to say we don't have any idea what's happening actually when we are working in the realm of divination. At least I think I could confidently say I don't have any idea what is actually happening. I will go on record and say that I do, but I cannot share that with people because they're not ready. But perhaps at some point, if well, the maybe you would like to share it with me, because maybe there's something that you know about it that I don't know about it, but I would like to know about it. <laughs> well, I think that people will just have to continue listening to my show, because maybe at some point it will become available for me to be able to share with them, and then by happenstance they'll be listening. So I digress. Please continue. <laughs> well, that was quite a digress. <laughs> went against the entire field of science. (laughs) Oh, science. (laughs) So, I think um, what I do want to say is that a lot of what I feel both of us do is present. And there is something about presence that creates a container for what is known in physics as non-locality. So in the quantum realm, uh, particles actually have a non-local relationship with each other. Um, Information can actually travel very, very long distances between particles if those particles have had contact at some point. It's actually called entanglement. So quantum physics gives us a basis of principles by which you and I might be able to use to speculate about what might be going on when two minds are in a container which is um, turned toward a particular endeavor like I'm interested in what's happening inside of me, how I'm thinking and feeling about my life right now and where that might be going. And when you invite another human being into that kind of exploration, to me, something must be happening non-locally in the communication aspect between two minds. Would you agree? I would. And so when you say non-locally, how would you define or describe that for people listening? So non-local means that um, two objects or entities are not actually physically touching each other, but they are exchanging information between each other. And this is why, you know, because for me, the the non-locally on a kind of a a layman's level um, is why, because I get asked this all the time, is why doing a reading for someone over the phone or through Skype is still just as valid, just as effective yeah. as it is in person. There is a benefit and there is something nice about being in person with for a session, but if it's not possible, that doesn't take away from the effectiveness of the session. And do you think that in a therapeutic sense, 
it can be just as successful uh, to do a session with a client, say through phone or Skype versus being in person? Actually, I know it's just as effective because um, I work in Silicon Valley, so often uh, my patients are busy business people and you know, there's times when they are overseas <laughs> or they're at a business meeting, they're in another state, and so I will do work with them using Skype or FaceTime. And there is no difference. To me, there's no difference. Now, that said, what, what I will say is what I don't do, and there are therapists out there who are doing this, um, I won't start a therapeutic relationship at a distance. Um, it's a tool that I will use once I'm, we already have established a therapeutic relationship in physical space. Then there's no difference. And part of that is because one of the initials after the, the <laughs> after my name is I am um, tra I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner. So I, I actually do somatic psychotherapy as well, and that's working at the level of the body. So I need to be able to see the whole body. Right. I need to have that presence of the whole body. But again, this brings up that point of presence. What actually is, when we're present with someone, what are we actually doing? Well, I, for me, I would say that we're actually energetically engaging each other. So when you say energetically, what does that mean to you, energetically? Uh, well, for me, it means there is something at a deeper level and an unseen level that is connecting or interacting and taking place, and that coming into the presence of the other person, and for me, whether it's physically or not, but coming into that presence allows that energy to now intermingle, and yes. something from that can come that wouldn't have otherwise if that energy hadn't intermingled. I would agree. So there's two interesting aspects of the way the human mind functions that I'll just throw out here so we can put it in the mix. Um, the first is, as human beings, we actually have something called theory of mind. Have you ever heard of theory of mind? I have not. Oh, this is great. So we have the capacity to posit the existence of a mind in another human being. Yeah. And on a mundane level, it's, okay, I think I can know what you're thinking, like maybe by an expression you're having on your face. Does that give credence to also positing that when we're out in public and we can easily come to the conclusion, obviously that person does not have a mind? because of the way they're acting or talking? <laughs> well, what we're positing is they have a mind that might be different than ours, but we know that they're acting that way because they have a mind. So theory of mind is a, it's an assumption that we live with because we have the neural mechanisms for empathy. Empathy actually allows us to assume what other people are thinking because when we see something happen, we have motor neurons in our brain that emulate, they actually mimic the activity. So let's say I'm walking down the street and I see someone trip. 
in my mind, I'm tripping. I'm actually creating the experience of tripping in my own mind in, through this motor neuron system so that I have the empathetic feeling of, oh, my gosh, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> like stubbing your toe. You know, oh, I almost fell and hurt myself. Yeah, I have all of that so that I can actually empathize with the experience the other person is having. And by empathize, you mean feel it on some level. And I, the experience. Right. And I think that that's, that speaks to even why, even in this day and age, well, some people would have thought that perhaps going to live concerts and things would have gone away because now we can just watch them on TV or whatever. But yeah. we find that there's been such an explosion of, um, it, it's like, it used to be called Rays, now it's the EDM, the electronic uh, music scene. But it's these big festivals. Mm-hmm. that are actually, you know, three, four hundred thousand people will come together. And I think it's this theory that actually plays into why those are such satisfying and attractive yes. things for people because you get to go and you're not just feeling what you're experiencing from it, you're now tapping into and experiencing what this collective of people uh, are experiencing. And it's a much <laughs> broader, you know, more expansive kind of experience and feeling to have. Yes. Would that fall under this? Sure. Yes. And partly that's because we're tribal animals. So we feel more, we emote more when we have more of us sharing in a particular experience. And so the, this ability to posit another mind, the capacity to see what's happening in another person non-verbally, body language, uh, just what you call energy, the the basic resonance of another person. If If you're present to that, you get a huge amount of information being fed in to your brain. And we have these mechanisms to be able to try to form some kind of picture in our mind about what is the information that's coming to us. I think that people who are really good at divination are really good at being present with all that information. That is one thing that I think um, makes divination work. Which is also why you'll often see people that do divination or healing work, maybe even, um, and especially if they've been doing it for many hours or for many people yeah. that they can be very exhausted and drained where some people might look at that and go well how tiring is it just to sit at a table and turn cards over for people and yet what you're talking about is because energetically there's so much going on mm-hmm. that it's just like you know the same as if somebody had been running a marathon and now wants to come home and take a nap that's right that's right So then another aspect for me of what goes on um, is as human beings, we participate in a kind of collective grouping of information. That when you're born in a human body, just by the virtue of the fact you're born in this form, you get the download of pretty much, I think, all of the 
major archetypal information that human beings have created for eons. And symbols are a big part of that, wouldn't you agree? I would I would think that's a very basic component of it. And there's one other thing that's important to know about the human mind. We are pattern recognition animals. We will see patterns and make meaning even where there isn't any. <laughs> it's just one of the things we do. And part of the reason we do that is because we're excellent at pattern recognition. It's a big skill that we got on the savannah when we were very small compared to the very large animals out there and we really needed to be able to survive. So we had to recognize certain patterns in order to gear ourselves up and take care of ourselves. But as the world got somewhat less threatening for us, we have another penchant, which is a penchant for superstition. And when you put pattern recognition together with superstition, you get a deep need to create meaning in the world. And then there's one other piece, which is we have an unfortunate, desperate need to know the future because we have a deep need to feel secure and we don't like impermanence that's certainly one of the big lessons of Buddhism is coming to terms with the impermanence of all things but human beings are not good we're not good at knowing the reality of uncertainty that everything is uncertain that everything is probably actually random except within the randomness there's patterns and there's organization this is from chaos theory so when you think about divination and you put together the ability to posit another mind to feel like you can know what the other mind is actually thinking and feeling and then you take our incredible capacity for pattern recognition with that little bit of superstition thrown in so that we like to make meaning. And then what you do is you take a system of symbols that have had deep meaning, that have held meaning for human beings for generations and generations and thousands and thousands of years. I think that you could pretty much come up with a case for being able to look at a set of symbols, whether it's tarot cards, whether it's astrology, you know, whatever system you want to use and be able to have a conversation with someone about what's happening in their life and what they would like to have happen. Don't you think? I do think. I better think, considering that's what I do. <laughs> um, how, how can you start to discern when it has slipped too far into the superstition realm? Uh... Well, I think you've probably been in the presence of really untalented readers. <laughs> Have you not? <laughs> I, I, I should probably plead the fifth and say nothing. Come on. <laughs> We've all been in the presence of... Charlatans. At one, one time or another. And I'm sure you've also been in the presence of people who really hold a kind of um, definitiveness. There's something, they're so embodied 
in their capacity to know. Yeah. To, to, they embody truth in a way. Yeah. And you know the difference between those two. And I would say that, you know, the former is always going over the line with this, that they, they think they have to try to create something in order to make something happen. The truth is, everything is already there. So all you have to do is open up to what's already there with a kind of um, curiosity and resonance and be intelligent about it and um, not be fixated on your own egoic needs in it. And I, I think you could probably do a pretty good job. It's almost like the patterns are like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, and mm -hmm. divination, or getting a reading of some sort, is helping the person to become more consciously aware of the patterns that are already there, and how to then take those patterns and put the pieces together to create the future that they want not to necessarily predict a future, but to help them work with those pieces mm -hmm. that are all, like you said, that everything is already there available, to then be able to understand how to put them together to create the kind of picture that they're seeing that they would like their future to look like. Yeah. And I would say that's true in whatever context, relational context you're in, even in the psychotherapy container. I mean, I am very quick to tell people they know themselves much better than I could ever know them. And to me, people have all of what is available for them to be um, successful and happy in their lives. They've already got it. It's just we often um, get in our way mentally and emotionally. We think very small. Yeah. <laughs> very limited way of thinking about the way things are. And somehow it seems a, a very common thing that people think that someone else somehow sees or knows better than we do. Yes, of course. We're, we're pretty good at projection. Um, and when would you recommend someone seek out divination and when would you recommend someone not seek out divination? Um, I, I, I think the answer to the question is, is, what is your motive for seeking out divination? I mean, are you going thinking that somebody is going to tell you all the answers so you don't have to do anything, you don't have to explore? Are you going because you're unwilling to actually recognize that you're the one who has the power to know what's right for you? I mean... Are you doing this as a way to abdicate your power and responsibility in your life? I would say don't go because all it will be probably is um, if you're with a talented um, practitioner like you, for instance, who is not interested <laughs> in being a fortune teller and taking people's power away, they're probably going to be pretty frustrated. But, you know, so I, otherwise they're just going to take, get taken advantage of by someone who doesn't have the kind of values and talent. I often think the more emphasis someone places on predicting the future, the less likely I am to trust them as a reader or a practitioner. Well, I will say 
um, that certainly in astrology there are astrological disciplines that are focused only on that, like electional astrology, you know, where somebody is, you want to know when the right time is to do something, and you go to an electional astrologer and they have their way of looking at the chart and telling you exactly when. But the, but the difference there is they're telling you when the right time would be, but it's still up to you as to what you do with that particular period of time. Exactly. Rather, rather than what I was really alluding to was people who say, this is going to happen at such and such time, and basically you have no choice over it, that it's this very hardcore predictive. I know in Vedic astrology you get that perhaps a little more. Well, Vedic astrology is very interesting. I'll, I'll tell you a quick and interesting story about this. Um, <clears throat> I once, and this is about maybe 12 years ago, so I, yeah, this is 12, this is before, um, this is probably just before I started to do graduate school for psychotherapy training, and um, I met an Indian woman, and she was with her mother, and this is a young woman, and she found out I was an astrologer, and she uh, she said to her, she said to me, my mother wants me to get my data chart done because she wants to know when I'm going to get married, and I don't want anything to do with this. And I looked at her, and I said, tell me, um, where were you born? And she said, well, I was born in Bangalore, but when I was two, we moved to London. And I grew up in London. <laughs> and her mother was standing right there. And I said, I said, well, it, you know, I, my sense is you probably resonate more with a Western idea of free will. And she said, absolutely. She said, I am Indian culturally. She said, but, you know, I just, the whole idea of the chart telling me when I'm going to get married seems crazy. And I said to her, well, it doesn't seem crazy to your mother because this is the culture that your mother grew up in. And this is the perspective that Vedic astrology has. And it can be useful. But clearly, philosophically, this doesn't resonate with you. And I think that's important even for people if they thought they wanted to seek out some sort of a reading seek out both a person as well as a type of tool that resonates for them and they feel comfortable with rather than what they think they're supposed to go get or yeah. what somebody else is telling them to go do. Yeah. Um, and do you think there's any way for people to kind of ascertain what particular tool or approach might be best in a particular time or for a particular kind of question? Well, I, I would say, and this is the way, this is my perspective on tarot, the imagistic nature of tarot, the images themselves, you know, if you just turn a card over and you put it in front of somebody, they are resonating with their own deep psyche. They, they just are by virtue of there's an image. And as I said, we are pattern recognition animals. So... You know, people have that image and their relationship to that image somewhere in their brain. So it's sparking a slew of thoughts and images inside of the mind, feelings, 
And I think that images can be a beautiful vehicle to go deeply into the psyche. Much better than astrology, I think. Even though, I will say, um, there certainly are enough people in the psychology world who have used um, astrology diagnostically to actually look at the structure of the psyche. You can do that. But it's more a diagnostic tool. It's hard for someone who doesn't know about astrology to have a relationship with astrology, like a direct relationship with it. Yeah, I think that something like astrology or palmistry, those kind of things are much more dependent on the practitioner. That's right. Whereas something like tarot or some other image-based kind of divination tool is is much more uh, able to work with and and the, the client themselves is much more able to be a part of the process. Yes, that's right. It's a direct relationship with their own psyche. Now, that said, it's their psyche in that moment, <laughs> right? Yes. So they're seeing all of their psyche, their their own um, deep psychological responses to something as it's showing up in that moment. But wow, you can learn so much about who you are and how you respond using tools like Tarot, I think. And also why there is not like some textbook set meaning for the cards that you just learn. Because if someone from an Indian culture looked Mm -hmm. at a card and somebody who grew grew up in the Midwest of America looks at a card and the image on that card, they may have an extremely different response or story or association for what they see in that image. Yes, yes. And of course in that way... You and I, we're now talking about using divination in a deeply psychologically healing way. So, of course, then you get to that mushy area (laughs) where you say, okay, so here's this tarot consultant who's now mucking around with somebody in in that person's psyche. (laughs) And you say, wow, (laughs) that's something I really want to be doing without some psychological training, which, of course, is up for debate, you know. But again, what I would say is even that journey with somebody in their psyche, if you can really be present, if you can really be just that, that presence that holds the container for the person to feel safe enough to explore in their own mind what's happening, that that is more than enough. That would make you a phenomenal divination practitioner, just if you could do that. And I know you do that, I see. Oh, well. <laughs> I know that's very much the way that you work with people. Yes. Well, another word that I'm very keen on as well, which I also think is a way of, at least for me, of determining if a reader is really doing what I think a reader and divination is supposed to do is the word empower or empowerment. So mm-hmm. it's it's helping that client see those things in themselves that the reading is bringing up and showing to them yeah. and then how they can best work with those to move forward or to take action or to create the future that they're envisioning for themselves rather than simply a reader who is saying, you need to do this. Exactly. But the reader who says you need to do this is missing the gem. 
you know, they're missing the gem, the treasure in the experience of having a direct relationship with your own mind. That is the client having a direct relationship with their own psyche. They're the junk food of readers versus the organic <laughs> reader. <laughs> um, so when you were talking about like the study around being able to posit the mind and those theories, uh-huh. is there any part of the people that study those kind of things that will push outward and look at being able to do that in other than human species, be it animals? Absolutely. Even... Yeah. You know, on an esoteric level, yeah, you start to get into plants, which gets into the whole idea of using herbs and the energy of herbs and stones and crystals and the earth and all of that. So there is a relatively new field, but it is a serious field. It's actually called plant neuroscience. (laughs) And it's sort of affectionately called plant neuroscience because, of course, plants don't have neurons. But what plants do have is they have DNA and they have information and they have chemicals in which to impart that information. You know, neurons work through electricity and chemical reaction. That's, that's how we think. It's just, you know, everything we think of as our mind is just a bunch of electrical impulses and chemical re- reactions. Plants have exactly the same thing. All species have the same thing. And there's, there's actually a lot of affective neuroscience, which is the neuroscience of emotions, that's done on animals to understand our basic impulses. Um, and the field has exploded in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so, and this is not woo-woo at all. None of this is considered woo-woo. It's, it's different than, there was a book in the 70s called The Secret Life of Plants that many of us remember. Um, and it's, it's not quite like that. It's not... <clears throat> Neuroscience as in plant thinking. It's more neuroscience as in plants being able to detect their environment, to be able to respond to other entities, plants, whatever, energies in the environment, to have relationships with things. I mean, life is life. And again, we have to say, nobody knows what consciousness is. And so I, oh, we don't know. And, and I think a lot of what you're just talking about, whether it's quantum physics or the, the um, study with plants and things that is now starting to burgeon, mm-hmm. um, really is starting to just scientifically prove many of the things that actually would have been considered superstitious uh, way uh-huh. back when. you know, And whether it's the person who recommended a plant to somebody in the village to treat their illness because they said that they had a dialogue with the plant and it said this is what I am able to help with or treat Mm -hmm. but I think that goes back to what we started with was they were in that energetic interaction and exchange that presence of each other doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a person can be in the presence of the animal or the plant and that's what I think we've lost a lot of in our world today and what we would really do well to come back to. And I think that's why even people respond to, say, organic food. Because there is this presence that you enter into, even without thinking about it or realizing it, that is pure and natural from the earth and hasn't been mixed with other things that is getting in the way of that pure energetic exchange. 
Yeah. It's true. It's a, everything you say is true. That's what I tell my clients too. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we we are in relationship to everything. We have the capacity to be in relationship to everything. The question is whether or not we are interested in being in relationship to everything. And I think largely what I do in psychotherapy is help people come back into relationship, not only with who they are authentically, but with the actuality of this experience of the world as it is, not the distorted way that their mind is telling them it is. Which is where mindfulness can even be, I would, what you were just talking about and mindfulness then expands that out because if they're able to do that with themselves, Mm -hmm. then they're able to go out and say, be standing next to a tree and be mindful of the tree or look at the food in front of them on a plate and be mindful of that food and interact with it and engage it in a different way. Yes, the ordinary is quite extraordinary if you're willing to be present. But just like in the, the difference between those two words, you have to make the extra effort in order to see mm-hmm. it and experience it in order to find the extraordinary that's yes. all around us. The other thing I would say is where these two things come together for me is the stripping away. You know, often when, when people are in an experience of for instance, having a tarot consultation, they may be seeing things they've never seen before. And they often what gets stripped away is their assumptions about the way things are, the way they think things are. When they see a certain card and, you know, they have that moment of, of, wow, this is reminding me of such and such, or, oh my gosh, you know, I'm feeling that. That's an awakening moment where your assumptions get ripped away. And I think that really good psychotherapy is geared to make that kind of awakening happen in people's psyche, to strip away the assumptions that are incorrect, these old habitual assumptions about the way they think they are, they think other people are, they think the world is, that just aren't true. And I think that going in for divination is doing that at an even deeper level. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you wanted to be esoteric about it, it could be doing it on a multiple lifetime level or different things. But it's just helping to go to some of those other places that are a bit outside of the normal field of vision. Well, well I, what I will say is that the process of psychotherapy to me is completely magical. I I don't know how it works. It is it's just incredible. I mean it really is incredible and um I rarely I mean I, I maybe in all these years now, maybe once or twice somebody has asked me if I would run their astrological chart for them and, you know, look at it diagnostically. I mean I have the skills to do it but I hardly use that really in my psychotherapeutic process. On the other hand, there has been more than one occasion where a client was talking about something 
that was really disturbing for them, something happening. And I just had in my mind the image of a tarot card. And I thought, wow, what would it be like if I took out my laptop <laughs> and I just brought out the image of that card from the Rider Waite deck and just showed it to them and, you know, said, you know, what, what shows up for you when you see this? And not doing any direct divination at all, but just letting them have a relationship with an image that is, could speak more deeply to a part of them that they might not have direct access to. And it's always interesting. And I have never had it fail. By the, by the end, I always say, can I print that out? It's like, you know, have it. <laughs> and is there any reason, if, if somebody was either in therapy or is thinking of pursuing therapy of some sort, yeah. is there any reason, and here I'm thinking more whether there's some sort of legal thing or whatever, is yeah. there any reason why they couldn't ask their therapist to um, use a tool like that? Well, again, it depends how you're using it. I mean, if you're actually, if you're operating under your clinical license and you're giving a reading, you're not operating under your clinical license. So that's unethical. But if you're using an image as a way to um, allow a person to have a relationship with their own psyche, a different kind of relationship, um, that's a tool of psychotherapy to let the person have a relationship with an image. That's the difference here. Yeah. Well, I think that's good for people to hear because that would also help them ascertain if they could feel that the person they are either working with or thinking of working with is um, honorable, if they can trust working with that person, or if somebody is just going to try to do a tarot reading for them rather than actually use it as one of the tools in the therapeutic process. Yeah, I, I can't say that I know any clinicians, licensed clinicians, who would um, do something so unethical. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that you don't. It doesn't mean they're not out there. <laughs> that's but right. I, I, but I, I like to just give that to people so that it's just one thing to look for as a criteria, just like interviewing a real estate agent or whatever. You know, it's if you're going to go kind of interview these a couple of people to find the right fit for you rather than just because somebody has half the alphabet after their name doesn't mean they're suddenly the best person for you to work for. That's true. Um, and if, if somebody has had really good uh, experience or has it's been really beneficial for them, say they've gone and had divination readings that have been very beneficial for them on many levels, not as just predicting the future, then not to be afraid to perhaps look for someone that might be open to that or work with some of those tools in some way because they do exist. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a whole field of psychological astrology. There, you know, there is. You can be trained as a clinician in psychological astrology. When, and when I was in my early 20s, I was in New York City, and when I first started, I mean, I learned tarot first. But I started to learn tarot, I guess I was 19. But in, when I moved into Manhattan, and I got interested in astrology, there was a huge movement at that point uh, among psychotherapists, licensed psychotherapists, to embrace astrology. So I basically learned astrology from the perspective of 
psychological astrology and death psychology. They, they were very intertwined back then in the early 80s in the astrology world. So I think the thing that I would caution people about really is the other way around. You know, if you're having clinical depression or you're having some kind of very um, life um, impacting anxiety that makes it impossible for you to do anything or you have trauma and trauma is creating a set of symptoms in your life that make your life unworkable, um, you should be getting clinical help and not using divination as the way to work through that. Well, I agree, and I think that's also the mark of a good reader, is to recognize when somebody comes in and has that to be able to say, instead of just wanting to get the money, to be able to say to them, this or I am not the right person for what you're needing, and then to have a list of resources they can refer them to, to say, this is my... This might be better for what you need right now. That's right. Feel free to come back, mm-hmm. but for the moment, this may not be right. So I think that's also another thing that a good reader should be able to to do. Now, since our theme is divination, yeah, um, perhaps, and I know that especially your perspective on astrology is it's much more personal, individual, and it's very difficult to look at bigger things but is there anything I I tend to think of it as like looking at the weather patterns Mm -hmm. you know is there any particular astrological weather pattern coming during this year that people might want to be aware of and maybe some suggestions on how to best weather the storm or navigate through it so um, I will start this by saying if you're really interested in the aspects and formations that the planets make as they travel through the constellations and you're interested in what that means for you in particular, it's always best to go to a talented astrologer who really can do your natal transits for you because um, big broad sweeping generalizations about this and how it can impact you personally, to me that is just bogus. Don't even bother. On the other hand, what I will say is because of the archetypal nature of the energies of the planets and because human beings have been having this archetypal relationship with those energies for thousands of years, what the planets are doing has an impact. Um, we won't go into the other kinds of science that there's been about how the planets can have an impact through the solar winds and through the tides and things like that on human beings. I'll just say that and let that be. But um, in terms of 2014, uh, the most interesting um, grouping of planets having a relationship with each other this year, I would say, is Um, a nice interesting T-square between Pluto which uh, Pluto even though it's no longer a planet (laughs) it's now a dwarf (laughs) that's okay you can't can't keep the energy of Pluto down even though it's a dwarf (laughs) 
But Pluto, in general, rules seeing things as they actually are because Pluto is the vacuum cleaner of the zodiac. It will basically shine a big fat spotlight on whatever has been hidden and say, see this and deal with it. And that's one of the reasons why Pluto always feels so transformative and also difficult and explosive. The other thing about Pluto is it rules control, how we exert control, how we feel controlled. And it does rule kind of the underworld aspects of the human psyche, so the uglier things about human nature. On the other hand, it is the phoenix that rises from the ashes. So even though it has that capacity to hold the darker side of human nature, it really is about how one sees the shadow. You deal with the shadow. You recognize your own shadow nature, and you allow it to teach you in such a way that you transform it into wisdom. Very, very powerful. So Pluto's in Capricorn, and Capricorn is the reality sign. You know, it's ruled by Saturn, so it doesn't, not into any of the spiritual stuff you and I have been talking about. (laughs) Very, very hard nose about the way things are. On the other hand, Saturn is also the teacher. It's the great guru. So by seeing the reality of things, we really get taught about how, how not only how things actually are, but also who we are and how we can grow and change. So they go together, but together they are a taskmaster, let me tell you. They don't let people get away with anything. I, I think, um, as we were discussing earlier, Governor Chris Christie's little escapade with the traffic stopping over at the Fort Lee Bridge is a great example of Pluto and Capricorn. Can't keep that under the rug. (laughs) And when it comes out from under the rug, you better take responsibility for it because there's no way to make it look nice. Even if you say, I didn't know about it, you're an idiot for not knowing about it. So it's going to be ugly either way, but you better be real when you do it so that it's a little less ugly. So, Pluto is in opposition to Jupiter. And Jupiter, being the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter is this big, expansive energy. It's very philosophical. It's very open and generous. It's a planet of bliss and luck. Wherever Jupiter is, it does good things. And it's in Cancer right now, the sign of the heart, you know, our our most basic resonance with love and caring for ourselves and for others. Right now, Jupiter's retrograde, so its big expansiveness is limited a little bit by its movement, apparent movement, backwards through the zodiac. It doesn't actually move backwards, it just slows down enough in its trajectory that because of the axis of the Earth, it looks like it's moving backwards. But what it does is it asks each of us to go inward with Jupiter's energy. So it's sitting opposite Pluto, this big, powerful energy of seeing reality and transforming oneself around what you see, grappling with your shadow nature and transforming it. And right opposite is Jupiter, which is this kindness, this generosity, this heartfeltness, 
So holding the shadow with kindness. And because retrograde is deep, it's internal. This is a chance for people to do the kind of reparative work in the heart and to learn how to compassionately and kindly love themselves and their shadows. All the you know, all the foibles, the things that we do that we're not very proud of. And so we don't want to be in hatred to the things that we don't like about ourselves or about other people even. It's important to be compassionate because human beings suffer, we all suffer. And all difficulty that shows up is because of human suffering. So this is sort of an invitation into the bodhisattvic um, aspiration to free oneself from one's own suffering in order to free all beings from suffering. And this opposition, both of these planets are square, which is a challenge. Squares are actually good things. They challenge us to do something. And both these planets are square Uranus. And Uranus is in Aries. Aries is a sign of the child of new beginnings. And Uranus is complete, new, alternative, unusual um, ways of being and thinking in the world. And it's also very utopian. So it isn't just personal. It's transpersonal. It cares about what's happening for other people. So when these planets are traveling in this T-square, there's a lot of general energy to be able to look at the problems of society, to be able to then look inside and ask oneself, how am I contributing to the problems of society? What can I do to do something radically different, which is Uranus in Aries? And because it's Aries, how can I do it and have some fun doing it? <laughs> how can I do it and make it an adventure? How can I not get stuck in the seriousness of all the terrible things that happen in the world? How can I not get lost so much in the mass of human suffering that we have at this point and say to myself, what can one person do? But that's the whole nature of, of, of Uranus. Uranus is, I can be an agent of change, just me. I can make something happen, even though it's just me. And I can go join and find other people and do it collectively, because that's also Uranus. And I would say that's also where the Jupiter retrograde comes in, because yes. we, we can get lost in thinking, yeah, but this needs to change in society. I am just one person. I can't possibly do that. But the retrograde allows us to look at it and say, yes, but if I look at it in a smaller way, exactly. I can see how I can make a difference on a small level, which then, like you were saying, can build exponentially if everyone is doing that on the small level to something bigger. That's right. That's right. So, you know, Jupiter doesn't stay retrograde forever, thankfully. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Our bank accounts are thankful for that. That's right. It does go direct. So um, the... Jupiter, I'll give you the date for when Jupiter goes direct. Because it's, you know, once it goes direct, actually, then all of these impulses come out from underneath um, our deep psyche, and we're actually able to act on them in the world. So the date, it goes stationary 
on May on March the 5th of 2014 and then it is direct on March the 7th so and at that point it's at 10 degrees so it's not quite in that exact relationship with the opposition with Pluto it has to travel forward um, to 13 degrees and <coughs> It travels forward and gets to 13 degrees on April 15th of 2014. So now it's in the exact opposition with Pluto. And it's, it's actually moving forward. So, and Pluto, by the way, is now retrograde. No, and Pluto spends, when it goes retrograde, it moves so slowly, it spends a very long time in retrograde. Um, so I won't spend so much time on that because people really feel Jupiter retrograde much more than they feel Pluto retrograde. Um, and at this point, Uranus is also at 13 degrees. So on April the 16th, from the 17th of April through the 23rd, this T-square is exact in all three of the planets. So what I would say to people at that time is, this is the time where if you've been cooking around, okay, there's certain things I don't like about myself or there's certain things I don't like about what's happening in the world, that this is a week when you could really put into action whatever steps you have thought you would like to take in order to actually make change happen. That's the nature of Uranus, making change happen, doing something new, starting a new beginning, whatever that might be. And again, I say, if you really want to know how this is functioning in your own chart, you need to go to a really good astrologer to see exactly where these planets are sitting, what houses they're in, how they're aspecting other planets in your chart. Um, and at this point, there's actually Mars is actually retrograded back, so now it's opposing Uranus. So we have a grand square instead of just a T-square. And it's true, Mars is at 15 degrees, but it's close enough that it's going to be hanging around having an impact until May the 6th. So Mars gets into, it's in Libra, and that's actually nice because Libra rules relationships. So especially for those people who feel like they want to make change happen in relationship to others, don't be hindered by the fact that Mars is traveling retrograde. Go ahead, take some action anyway. It may go slower than you think, but be patient. Just be patient and keep plugging away. Um, let's see, Mars does go direct in Libra on May the 21st. So um, that should give a little more energy to your efforts to take action and get something done. And um, let's see, and then as this is happening, when Mars is coming back forward, um, it is, Jupiter goes out of, it basically, it goes, it travels too fast, so it's no longer in the T-square with Uranus and the opposition with Pluto. So the T-square that becomes active is actually between Mars, Uranus, and Pluto. And that one is pretty much through June the 10th and uh, the 7th of July. To me, these are the most interesting aspects that are happening this year. And I, I know, I mean, I don't read that much of astrology on the internet, frankly. I'm not all that interested. 
in most of what's written about astrology. I do actually read Philip Sedgwick's work because I think he's uh, brilliant and he uses all the planets, um, even the extra solar planets. He uses the galactic center. I mean, he's he's just expanding the boundaries of astrology in so many ways. And um, he doesn't make stupid predictions. <laughs> <laughs> So I know there's all kinds of hideous predictions out there, but what I would just say to people is don't pay attention to any of that um, because if disaster is going to happen, it's going to happen anyway, and it's better to be mindful and prepared and awake and aware when disaster happens so that the disaster is less for you because you were actually present. Or it's not a disaster at all because... Just like when I was talking about weather systems, if a big rainstorm is coming, mm-hmm. you could take advantage of that by installing rain barrels to catch the water, and now you have water for the garden for the rest of the summer, rather than just looking at it as, oh, this rainstorm came and flooded my basement. Exactly. Yes. Having a wide perspective. Yes on the foibles of human experience. But I think that speaks to what we were talking about overall, to kind of sum that up, is divination allows us to be best prepared and to make the most of what is happening in us and around us, especially for the things that are perhaps outside of our control to some extent, so that we can make the best of it and the most of it rather than just feel as if we've been subjected to it and are a victim of it. Um, I think that that is good advice, yes. I agree. And I would also say that even with that, um, the unexpected always is going to happen and everything is impermanent. Everything arises, exists, and passes away in its own time, in its own way. And um, the human mind is not the controller of experience. Well, I think that just deflated many people. It deflated, it deflated their uh, ego's distortion. Yes. <laughs> but not their essence, no. <laughs> so if people wanted to get in contact with you to see about perhaps either working with you as a therapist or as an astrologer, if you still offer that, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, you know, uh, I... I don't do a lot of astrological work anymore. Mostly I just work for, you know, people who I've worked with before. Um, my website is lisadalemiller.com. It's just my name. And, um, you know, I think that's the best way for people to get, you know, just to see more of what I do and what I have to offer. I'm a Dharma teacher, so I have Dharma Talks for a free download on the site. And, um, and on iTunes as well. Oh, yes, yes, and I have many meditation practices that have been up on iTunes for years, so, and that's, they're a podcast, they're all for free, and, and, and of course, my book is coming out, uh, although that book is, it's a clinical textbook, and it is somewhat scholarly, um, don't let that scare you, but... Let, then let's not underestimate my audience. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Colleagues who are like, really? It's totally clinical. Do I really want to read that? So, what's the what's the name of the book? The book is called Effortless Mindfulness: Genuine Mental Health Through Awakened Presence. And that's and out. it's 
It's already on Amazon for pre-order, so you could just put my name into Amazon or put Effortless Mindfulness in either one, and the the pages from uh, Rutledge, my publisher, will come up. And it comes out April 17th. So it says on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, people. Breaking news. (laughs) I get my information from Amazon. (laughs) It's a scoop. Keep listening to this show in the future. You don't know what scoops you might hear. Um, and and there will be a website specifically for the book. Will that go into greater information and expand on the book or just be informational about the book? No, actually, the website is going to be um, a, a very active place. It'll have It'll grow over time, but... The, because the book is a clinical manual um, and it does not have a CD attached to it, I'm actually recording all of the meditation practices that I teach in the book for clinicians to offer to their patients. I'm going to be recording them and offering them for download on the book's website for a nominal fee. And I probably will be, um, I've started to do a series of um video pieces on the Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based psychotherapy. So there'll be some of that as well, and I'll do more, you know, writing. It'll be, uh, it'll mostly be for clinicians, although there'll be stuff for clients to take advantage of as well. I always do that. And is that site up, or when will it? No. When when are you anticipating that it will be up? It'll coincide with the release of the book. Ah, okay. Yeah, so probably not till the beginning of April. All right. Right now I'm being very secretive about the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) I actually haven't announced any of this publicly except with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently if I go on Amazon, I could find out all sorts of things that you think are secret but are just right out there for the world to see. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's on the page actually is not secret to me. (laughs) Well... I want to say thank you very much for having been willing to spend some time and talk about this. This is so much fun. I'm really glad that you were willing to explore um, (laughs) this topic today because I think you've had a lot of really good insight. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope that your listeners have a sense of how talented you are at what you do because I mean I've seen you grow in your skill over the years and um, you are a treasure and I encourage anybody out there to take advantage of the work that HiC does because it is of the highest quality. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. My pleasure the truth (laughs) (laughs) and again if you want to find out more information about Lisa you can visit her website at lisadalemiller.com so stay tuned and we'll be back with our living well segment followed by our live readings segment and if you'd like a reading during the show feel free to Skype in or to call 646-716-5510 in order to get into the queue So stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. A return to this understanding of the truth of food and the value of food within our life. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life, and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. Hello and a happy new year to all. Thanks for joining me once again. May this year be your best yet individually and ours collectively. The fabrication of the illusion we have come to call call life grows daily, it seems, as many are starting to see behind the veils of deceit and betrayal of our government and world powers. So many lies abound that it's sometimes difficult to find the truth. Yet we must know that it is not our way of life, per se, that is destroying the planet, but that of the corporations and elites, which are the governments. All the same thing. For life to survive, we must look with new eyes and be willing to step out of the lies and into the ancient wisdom of living in harmony with the earth and each other. To remember our spiritual heritage, to know that if the heart was online, none of what is going down would be so. We must reclaim our truth or lose our way even further. And death will be the outcome for all if we do not take heed now and see that life is precious and fragile at this point, and so are we. Regaining self-sufficiency and self-responsibility are the only ways to make life forward-moving and sustainable. Nature offers us all we have ever needed to live in peace, health, and harmony. So as we see the decaying reality all around us, it's time to look at new ways or old ways made modern. One such model is called permaculture. It has captured my heart and turned into a passion with hope for all of us to live in the truth we carry within our hearts. It's time to see that this false reality filled with the lies is about to crumble. It is not sustainable. What shall we do and how shall we survive? It's time to take a deep look at what's really going on and how we can move forward in a way that embraces and welcomes all of us into the truth of life. Permaculture is a model of regeneration for a world badly in need of help. First, let us look at the difference between agriculture and horticulture. Toby Hemingway is a wonderful teacher and deep seer of truth. He says it this way, the main premise is that agriculture, even non-industrial agriculture, is unsustainable. He approaches the issue from an anthropological perspective by examining prehistoric cultures that became extinct 
as a direct result of transitioning from horticulture to agriculture. Hemingway defines horticulture as food production using small gardens and food forests that incorporate and support the existing ecosystems. It empowers the people and keeps the spiritual life alive as it supports community and the growth thereof. Agriculture, in in contrast, destroys ecosystems to create vast clear-cuts dedicated to single crops. The archaeological records reveal that agriculture first developed in the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, around 10,000 B.C. At the time, it was lush forest and bush. However, after 3,000 years of artificial irrigation and the disruption of the ecosystems, the soil became too salty to support life. The land, which became a desert, still has not recovered. The same thing happened in ancient Egypt and Greece. Archaeological evidence reveals that all agricultural civilizations follow a typical pattern of soil depletion after an average of a thousand years. Then they either die out or moving along to a new land via conquest. According to Hemingway, the Oil Age was a great boon to our current agricultural civilization. Or was it? Or was it? Farm machinery and petroleum-based fertilizers and pesticides provided an immense burst into the world of food production. Unfortunately, this only hastened soil degradation and the disempowering of life and connection to spirit, the land, and the ancient wisdom. At the same time, a steep price increase related to oil and natural gas scarcity made it unavailable for a growing number of farmers, especially in the developing world. This all connects into permaculture. So while winter drags on, put some tea on and dream the new world and how you can be part of this evolution of ideas. What can you do to help support life, community, and to bring about the changes that must happen if we are to survive what might be coming? We are not all farmers that everyone has something to bring to the table as communities sprout up to support life. Permaculture is the spirit of this age, a new earth ethic dedicated to helping heal our planet and ourselves for all is one, as above, so below, as within, so without. There is no way to change this. Permaculture involves bettering human relationships to the living world around us and creating a harmony of successful, abundant interrelationships. As an ethos, permaculture is simply what is appropriate action at this time of transition in the history of our planetary ecology and evolution. Unlike ethics, which represents a moral imperative, the principles of permaculture are guidelines to help us create a harmonic and healthy home world. Thus, permaculture is the study of those sustainable systems or enduring systems that support human society, which include horticulture and intellect, traditional and scientific, architectural, financial, and legal. Permaculture, permanent culture, that which remains to the end, that which persists throughout. Culture, cultivation of land or the intellect now generalized to mean all those habits, beliefs, and activities that sustain human societies. 
Thus, permaculture is a sustainable design system that aims at living in perpetuity for all. The core of permaculture is conscious living, sustainable development, and resource conservation. Its ethics include and are based on care of the earth, care of the people, and fair shares for all. It is a response to the industrial urbanization of the earth and resulting toxification and pollution of the biosphere. It is a way of working with rather than against nature. It is about protracted and thoughtful observation rather than protracted and thoughtless labor. It is a harmonious integration of people into the landscape in such a way that the land grows in richness and beauty just as we do and will in the system of living in truth at last. It is the ancient ways made new in a language for our times. It is a, indeed a deeply integrated way of living and seeing life, one that allows all to come into their fullest. Shall we? Shall we? Shall come along. Come it's along. the best ride I could find in this circus monkey show that seeks to enslave us all further at the destruction of the very heart of life, which is our heart. To heal, the heart must be found and lived again. This is a way. Blessings to all on this road to freedom. With community, care, and honest living, all things are possible. So here's a list of some videos that you can watch on YouTube, easily available. Farm for the Future about a woman who inherits a farm, a traditional agricultural farm, and the transition that it goes through. Earthship Biotexture, and that's B-I-O-T-E-C-T-U-R-E. And it's uh, a new word, as we create new words to go along with our new realities. And Earthship is, is creating a home. It's a home that is made through re- of recycled goods, is very creative, it's sustainable, it's green, and completely affordable. Another one is Redesigning Civilization with Permaculture by Toby Hemingway. It is so profound and so beautiful and so moving. Highly recommended. Global Gardener 4 by Bill Mollison. Bill Mollison is one of the founding fathers of permaculture, and he takes you around the world showing you how horticulture in an urban setting is supporting so many people still today. And then another is called Food is Free. And it's how you can create in your community a permaculture, free food, gifting neighborhood. It's lovely. Books would be Beginning Permaculture by Bill Mollison and Creating Life Together. Practical Tools to Grow Eco-Villages and Intentional Communities by Diana Leith Christian. Wild Fermentation by Sander Ellix Katz. And Real Food Fermentation, Preserving Food with Live Cultures by Alex Lewin, L-E-W-I-N. This is about health for our bodies. Fermentation offers bacteria that keeps the the gut healthy. And the gut is one of the most important parts of the overall functionings of our body, our health, and our well-being. And allows us to store food over longer periods of time. Tips. Design a garden. Read seed catalogs. Only organic and heirloom seeds, please. Territorial seeds, Peaceful Valley, 
uh, Seeds of Change, the New Organic Seed Company, and the likes of these. The land can grow food with the right tools and understanding. Create a garden out of your front lawn. Create an urban free food community. Get your neighbors together on this. See how each of you and the area flourishes by creating life together. Create an evening for the neighborhood to come together and watch a film, have dinner. Love one another. Love Love yourself. yourself. See that life can be different and that the creation of new life and love depends upon us right now. No one's going to save us and the corporations don't care. Rest. Rest deeply for the earth is at rest. Eat warming, nourishing foods that support life and looking within and making anew our insides for when spring comes to sprout new life. Share food with friends. Read and dream the new dream. Then living it will be the next stage. Thank you. And remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. And my thanks to Linda Wiley for once again offering us a uh, Living Well segment that not only gives us some things um, that we can use and do on a practical level, but also challenges us to think a little bit about our place in the world, how we're interacting with the world, and what it is that we may be able to do to contribute to bettering the world. So my thanks to her, and of course my thanks to my guest, Lisa Dale Miller. So now is the portion of the show where we invite you, the listeners, to call in and join the show in order to receive a reading. And we're going to go ahead and go to the first caller that is waiting in the queue. And this is someone who is calling from area code 858. Um, are you there, listener? Yes, from I'm area code here. 858? Hello. Hi, C, right? Yes. Hi. Uh, How are you today? I am good. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, My name is Anne and I'm calling from California. 
Okay. And what's the question or what is it that you'd like for us to look at for you today? The question I would like to ask you, if you see that this year there will be a relationship with the person that I've known for some time and had hopes that things will develop uh, romantically. All right. So this is someone that you're not in a relationship with at the moment, but someone that you have known previously that has come back into your life? Yes. Okay. We had a contact about a week ago, so I I don't know whether it's just a courtesy contact or courtesy gesture or something else. <clears throat> so the well. There, there seems to be, this is how I think I would say it, there seems to be perhaps some feelings. One thing I would say with the contact with the other person and the card coming up for them, which is the Eight of Swords reversed, they seem to be starting to take steps to move out of either, sometimes the Eight of Swords can be a, uh, when someone feels like a victim, sometimes it's when they feel guilty, uh, sometimes when they feel it's something that has been done to them. Um, But the reversal of this card could show that they're starting to let go or move away or beyond feeling guilty about something. And so there is a sense of wanting to reconnect, to perhaps um, reconcile the situation, to make things better, to um, bring about a fresh start in a relationship with someone. Um, they, they, They may be doing that while you may be seeing it a little more romantically versus them just seeing it as how to uh, make reparations or to to um, do something for what happened previously in order to make it better, to make them feel as if we can all now move forward, hopefully repairing and reestablishing a relationship of some sort. But but when I look at the cards that are coming up for when I kind of looked outward to say, well, would this be a relationship worth uh, investing in or pursuing? The, the cards that came up really kind of say that in the long run, it may end up in difficulty or disappointment. Um, uh, the, I mean, the one thing I could say here is if either of you are still in a relationship with someone else, there is a card of divorce here that could indicate that pursuing this relationship would in the long run lead to some sort of a separation or divorce if there is already a relationship uh, that is existing. Um, he He's kind of having problem with his current relationship. I don't know what is his plan. That's why well, I didn't want to be involved with this situation. So right. you mean that he will yeah. proceed with the divorce? Well, probably in the long run, whatever he is involved with is is not something that he's going to stay involved with. However, it does indicate that it would not be very wise or healthy for you to try to engage in a serious relationship with this person as long as he is still dealing with that other situation. 
Um, like that the, was the cards an issue. Here. That's why I um, just one second. It was an issue. That's why I stopped talking to him a couple of months ago, because the person didn't resolve the situation with the other person, and I told him to so you have to figure out what you want to do. Right. So in other words, so, you feel that there will be some kind of decision from him and that person, so he will kind of make a decision what he wants to do. Yes, but but the card that would show that is in the long term, so it's like it's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and that if you tried to engage in a relationship with him right now, it would probably end in disappointment or heartbreak or a loss of trust. Um, so I would encourage you not to try to pursue engaging in relationship with this person at this time, but if and or when they decide to definitively finish and step away from the current relationship that they're in, then you may, then it, there is an indication that perhaps um, trying to establish a relationship from that point on could be something to do. But right now, if you tried to follow through on this or pursue this, you would end up getting heartbroken and feeling like not only can you not trust him, but you can't trust anybody because they never seem to do what it is that they say or promise they're going to do. Yeah, I understand. Now, I'm not going to be involved, and I'm kind of, I'm still with the same um, decision as I made a few months ago. I told him, you have to figure out your other relationship. But do you have any time frame how soon he would know for sure if he stays there or he leaves or... Um, I would anticipate that he will, it'll take him a little bit of time. I would see this as probably around, um, it's not going to be until the spring. And I would anticipate it wouldn't be until after the second three weeks of spring. Um, Probably not until like the end of April, beginning of May. Would he finally have made a decision and taken the necessary action to make a, a final break from what he's in right mm-hmm. now? But you don't see that that's a break between me and him. You think that's between him and the other person? Well, I would say yes, because simply because that's why I said if there is an existing relationship that either you and or he has, the cards that are coming up probably are indicating that either getting into relationship would be like if you were let's say that you were in a relationship getting involved with him would cause a divorce or a separation in that relationship or we need to wait until there is divorce or separation in order to pursue this otherwise we're going to end up with heartbreak and mistrust because I am also separated at this time so that's why I don't know maybe well, it's related to me well are you more than to him are you are you separated from someone you're married to or separated from just a relationship partner? Married. We were okay. married and we separated so, about a year ago. All right. So, I mean, literally the card that comes up here, the Five of Swords, is a card of divorce. So, again, this is saying that this is not a relationship to engage in until there is definitive separation, divorce, ending of current relationships for both of you. Um, so you'd want to focus on doing that first, and then 
visiting but this relationship. But our separation, it can take about a year or two. That's why it's not kind of final. That's why I'm not sure. It's just a lot of things involved in this. We, we don't have a relationship, but because of the process, it takes a while. Well, that's fine because that shows that at least there is finality for you. I mean, you know, sure, I realize there is, is time that something takes, but if you know that we're not going to you know, call off the process and stop the divorce proceedings, it's just a matter of the time it takes for something to happen, then in essence, you have finalized and you're divorced from your current situation. However, what you've indicated is that he is not. So he is not, for, yeah. So that, right. That's why I so don't say this card relates to me and my past relationship it, it, well, or his. It, it's, it's, it's for both because it's saying there needs to be Finality, separation, ending of current relationships. For you, it's pretty much done. I realize maybe you have to sign on the dotted line or something, and that'll take a year yeah. for paperwork to go uh -huh. through or whatever. But, but for you, it's done. For him, it's not. So this is saying that for both of you, you need to both be done and out of the current situations or know that it's final and not something you're going to go back to in order to move forward with this. Trying to do so beforehand is going to lead to trust issues, is going to lead to disappointment, is going to lead to heartbreak. Yeah, no, so, I'm not going so, to so, have any so relationship until maybe he will stay with this person. I don't know for sure. That's why I'm not interested in this, to be involved in that situation well, at this time. Well, the, the indication here is that he probably will not stay with this person, but he probably mm -hmm. won't make a decision about that and or leave from that situation until around the end of April, beginning of May time frame. And you simply have to use that time to ask yourself, are you going to wait around to see what happens or are you going to go ahead and get on with your life? Now, here, if it's something that it's like, you know, I'll wait. It's five months that I need to wait. If nothing has happened by, give yourself a deadline. If nothing has happened by May, then forget it. I'm going on. I'm moving on with my life. Obviously, this person is never going to make their decisions. But it does indicate that he probably will move in that direction. It's just a matter of it's going to take a, a few months. And you have to decide whether you really want to just wait around or not for something like that. Uh -huh. But it shows that okay. he is in, he is still interested in me, right? Yes. Okay. And may I please ask you how we can reach you f for private readings? The the website that you mentioned, I didn't have a chance to write it down. Oh, that's okay. Um, you can either well, there there's a number of ways you can do it. Uh, you can go to the Facebook page for Revolution with High C uh, and send me a message there. You can, or you can also look for Tarot by High C. There's a page on there for that as well. It has my contact information. My email address is just High C H I C at Tarot by High C dot net. And okay. any any of those ways, you know, whether a message through the Facebook page or sending me an email, either of those is fine. Okay, very good. I appreciate right. this reading High C. It was very nice to talk to you and. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year for you. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, so let's see. Looks like that's the only person we had in the queue. I know the interview went a little bit long, so perhaps I tested the patience of people. 
do apologize for that. Um, but I will remind people that are listening to the archive or the podcast from iTunes that even if you are listening uh, and we go over time and the live broadcast cuts out, as long as you're in the phone queue, you will still stay and be able to get a reading. So if you are thinking of doing that in the future, um, just make sure at some point during the live show that you get into the queue. And even if the live broadcast finishes, uh, it, it, we can still continue and you would still get a reading. So thank you very much for listening today. I look forward to having you join me here again next month in February. Revolution with High C airs the second Sunday of each month at 10.30 a.m. here on Blog Talk Radio. You can find me on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash C, or you can search for Tarot by High C, and the page should come right up. You can also find the um, page for the show at uh, facebook.com slash revolutionwithhighc. Uh, I would also invite you, I do co-host another show here, Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, that I co-host with Charlie Harrington. That will be airing this coming Tuesday at 8 p.m., uh, Tuesday the 14th, and it's the second Tuesday of each month. And this month our guest is David Alexander, who is a practitioner of palmistry, astrology, and tarot in Texas, and he actually works uh, and does readings in a very well-known hotel there called the Zaza Hotel, and we're going to be hearing all sorts of fun and interesting anecdotes and stories of his readings and experiences with celebrities, with the famous and infamous sometimes maybe tantalizing, sometimes maybe a little scandalous. So I would also either ask, yeah, um, invite you to join and listen live on Tuesday the 14th, or it's here on the Blog Talk archives or on iTunes under the Firefly Willows uh, live podcast, and you can listen to it at any time. Uh, so thank you very much for listening, and I wish you a month of blessings and surprises around every corner. Firefly Willows L-I-V-E presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutmers. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carasella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. <laughs>